This morning's scripture reading is from the 73rd Psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This morning is going to be part two of a sermon we began last Sunday on Easter. And what we did last week is we talked about three different paths that you can take through life, essentially. There's the the religious path, the doubter's path, and then the path of of faith. And I uh, argued uh, quite predictably, I suppose, that the path of faith is the best of those, that it's superior to the other two paths, that it's the, the third way this straight and narrow path that, that cuts through uh, re- religion on the one hand and secularism on the other, kind of uh, bypasses this, this impasse between the two. So that's what we talked about last week. The reason uh, a part two is required, the reason I want to revisit these exact same themes for a second week, is because I left a question unanswered, which is, okay, let's, let's say I'm convinced. Not by the sermon. The sermon wasn't good enough to convince you in one week. But if you, if you had already been on your way to being convinced, if you are a doubter, but you find yourself more and more attracted to the proposition of faith, the question that was left unanswered is, well, how? How do you get there? You're in the doubter camp. How do you switch over to, to the faith camp? Because you're in the doubter camp for a reason. You're in the doubter camp because you have doubts. So what do you do with all your doubts? You can't just decide to have faith all of a sudden. Even if you wanted to believe, how do you get there and what do you do with your doubts? That's the the title of the sermon this morning, Dealing with Doubt. And I want to look at it under three headings. First, the necessity of desire. First, the necessity of desire. And then second, the priority of experience. Third and lastly, the leap of faith. The necessity of desire, the priority of experience, and the leap of faith. Those will be the three sections this morning. So first, the necessity of desire. And all we're really doing in this this first section is just further clarifying what I already alluded to, which is the intended audience this morning. Because there are three groups of people here today, and I'm actually only talking to, to one of the three. So the two groups I'm not talking to, the first group is those of you who you'd like to believe, and you can, you do. 
Uh, and to those of you, I'd say, great, I'm, I'm happy for you, you know, but I, I talk to you every week, so I'm not as interested in you this morning. But the other group that's here that I'm not talking to, and this is the more important distinction, the other group of people that I'm here that I'm not addressing at all is those of you who you don't believe, but you don't want to believe. You don't even have the desire to believe. And if that's where you're at, you know, then I, there's really nothing to talk about. I'm only talking to the third group of people, which is those who, who don't believe but want to. And so the question that raises for you, if you're a non-believer, if you're here this morning and you got doubts and you're not, not sure if there's a God, not sure if Christianity is true, the question that distinction raises for you is, okay, I've always known I'm a non-believer, but which type of non-believer am I? Am I the type that wishes I could be a believer, or am I the type that's kind of glad I'm not a believer, that's kind of relieved to not be a believer, so I can keep my weekends free and, you know, do whatever I want? It's kind of like with the, uh, you know, doubt is, is like a disqualification. People think of doubt as a disqualification, like, I can't believe I'm a doubter. And it's kind of like being disqualified from the draft, you know, there's two different ways you can feel about that. You know, some people who, you know, think about World War II, they were disqualified from the draft and they were heartbroken. You know, they, they wished they could be there with their classmates on the front lines. Other people were disqualified from the draft. It's like, oh, shucks, I, you know, I guess I'll have to stay home and won't be able to risk my life. And that's how it is with doubt. Some people feel like, man, I just wish I could be a believer, but I can't. I'm disqualified by my doubt. Other people are pretty relieved. And you gotta, you got to ask yourself, which of those am I? Not, not this question of, is there a God or isn't there? You say, I don't know. Fine. You don't have to know. But you do have to know whether you want there to be or not. We talked about Thomas Nagel last week. Uh, one of my professors at NYU and one of the world's uh, most prominent living philosophers. But he actually comes up again this week in a totally different context on this question of whether you want there to be a God or not. And in his uh, book, The Last Word, from 1997, he has this remarkable passage about the fear of religion. And at first you think he's talking about the fear of religion like we were talking about last week, bad religion, you know, all the, all the terrible stuff that religion does. But then he clarifies and he says, no, that's not what I mean. Do we have this for the screen? I don't have it here, so I'm going to read it. Okay, so he says, in speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely, entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, political influence. That's what we were talking about last week. He says, no, I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Incredibly honest. And what I'm asking you is, can you be as honest as he is? Forget whether you judge there to be a God and all your wisdom and all your knowledge. Forget the, the truth proposition for a second and just address this question 
of desire. Do you want there to be or do you not? Now, when people are first approached with this question, people that don't believe, I think their, their knee-jerk reaction, their impulse, is to always say, well, yeah, sure, of course. Of course I wish it was true. Who wouldn't want to believe in, in heaven and forgiveness and purpose and meaning and unconditional love? Of course I wish it was true, but it's a fairy tale and my mind won't let me. That's what people say. But what I'm doing in this first section is pushing back on that and questioning that. Because there are a lot of upsides to there being a God, if there is. But there are also some really big downsides, the most notable of which is if there is a God, guess who's not in charge of your life anymore? You. And, and most people have a problem with that. So that's the first thing. Before you even get to this question of, of evidence one way or another, you have to first address the question of desire. And it's a question only you can answer. That comes first, the necessity of desire. Let's move on to section number two. Secondly, this morning, the priority of experience. The priority of experience. So like I just said a second ago, uh, the doubts come down to evidence. You know, you look at the evidence and you, you see the evidence uh, against God and you see the evidence or lack thereof of evidence for God. So on the lack of evidence for God, you know, you, maybe you feel like, uh, where, where's the proof? Where's the proof that he's there? Where's the proof that the Bible is real and not just some made-up book? Where's the proof that there's life after death? You feel like there's a lack of supporting evidence. But then on the other side, maybe you feel like there's, there's evidence against. You know, the, the biggest objection that people have today by far is, well, oh, if there's this God who is all good and all powerful and all loving, then why is the world so messed up. You know, why do all these terrible things happen? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And there are a lot of other ones along those lines. Like, uh, if Christianity is true, why has the church done so many messed up things? Or why are some of the worst people I know Christians? Or, you know, why, why uh, if, if God is there, then how do you explain all the different religions? You know, how can just one religion be right over against all the others? And we've talked about some of those questions before. We've actually done a whole series a couple years ago called Obstacles to Belief, in which we took these objections one by one. But this morning, I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about any of the evidence. I don't want to talk about the evidence for. I don't want to talk about the evidence against. What I want to do instead is step back and ask a question that comes prior, which is, well, wait a minute. How do people come to such different conclusions, opposite conclusions, when looking at the same evidence. Because we've all got the same facts. Everybody's got the same world. We all live in the same world, and yet we come to opposite conclusions. The human race is a hung jury on the question of God. And the question is, how does that happen? We're all in the same courtroom. We all heard the same testimony. So how do you have people come to totally opposite conclusions? I want to suggest an answer to that in just a second. But before we do, I want to look at the way that the, the two sides, the two partisan sides, answer that question. And what I want to try to do is, is get to a neutral answer. But the, the two sides do not answer this question neutrally. They answer it in a way that's, that's very offensive to the other side, and also just uh, pretty easy to show that it's not true. So the religious folks, let's start with them. 
the, the first answer to this question that we have to reject. And again, the question is, how do, how do different people come to, to different conclusions when looking at the same evidence? What religious people say is, well, that's pretty simple. It's just because some people are bad. Some people are, are immoral people. They're godless, soulless, and they have black hearts. And so it's easy for them to, to ignore the plain facts because they're such wicked people. Well, I mean, the offensiveness of this is obvious, especially if you're one of these folks in the I'd like to believe but I can't category, and then a religious person comes along and says, well, the reason you can't believe is just because you're such a terrible person. It doesn't ring true. And like I said, it's empirically falsifiable. We can all think of uh, one friend who doesn't believe and is a much more moral person uh, by biblical standards than some other friend who has a very easy time believing, but not such an easy time being nice. You know, it's very easy to point to these examples of non-believers who are more moral. So uh, that's the religious answer to this question of how do different people come to different conclusions, and it doesn't fly. But the, the secular answer, the atheist answer to this question is just as offensive and just as untrue. Because what the atheist says is, and by the way, both of these sides, they're not going to say this out loud. But if you really press for it, this is what it comes down to. And what the atheist will say is not, oh, the reason people come to different conclusions is because some people are bad. They'll say, well, the reason people come to different conclusions is because some people are stupid. And they really believe this. They, they truly believe that it's this matter of, yeah, we all have the evidence, but some of us are just better at interpreting it than others and are just smarter than others. Uh, there's this remarkable development back in 2003. It since has kind of lost steam and fallen off the radar, but you know, it's still there. The web page is still there. You can still look it up on Wikipedia. I, I mentioned that because you're not going to actually believe this when I tell you, but it's true. Uh, in 2003, uh, Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins, two of these most prominent atheist guys that we were talking about this, this new atheist movement last week, two of these guys, uh, they decided that atheism had a branding problem, a, a, a PR problem. Actually, the impetus was this, for this was there was this uh, March on Washington called the Godless March on Washington, and they realized that it just didn't sound very good. Um, so they set about trying to come up with a new term, a new identifying label that they could use for their beliefs and their movement. And the term they settled on, they didn't, they didn't come up with it, some other guy came up with it, but they latched onto it. The term they settled on for their movement, they were trying to rebrand it as this and have the, their atheists known as this from now on, was the term brights, B-R-I-G-H-T-S, brights. And now again, this is supposed to be uh, instead of atheism, like a, a label use. So you say, we are brights, you know, or I am a bright, or, or just I am bright, you know. <laughs> Why are you an atheist? Because I'm bright. Same thing, one, one and the same, they're synonymous. Christopher Hitchens, who's part of the movement, notably dissented from this rebranding effort. He said this is, he called it a cringeworthy proposal. He says you can't do this. It makes you, it makes you sound like you have this superiority complex. You can't name it this. But of course, they did name it that because they do have a superiority <laughs> complex. 
There's just no denying that. And I'm not saying they're worse. I'm not saying they're worse than religious people. I'm just saying they're different. Both have a superiority complex. The religious folks have a moral superiority complex. The secular folks have an intellectual superiority complex. But both think that the reason both sides come to different conclusions is because the other side is just inferior in some way. So let me suggest a possibility for a neutral answer to this question. How do, how do different groups of people come to different conclusions when looking at the same evidence? The suggestion I want to make is that it's not because some people are morally depraved, and it's not because other people are intellectually deficient. But what it comes down to is different experiences. We've all had different experiences that lead us to different beliefs. And this cuts both ways. You know, you have to apply it to both sides equally. So for believers, you know, sometimes believers will try to say, well, you know, why do you believe? Well, I, I just looked at all the evidence, and I just, it's just clear that, that God is there. Well, no, that's just not what happened. That's not what you did. What happened was you had these powerful experiences, either as a kid or as an adult. It could be either. And after you had the experience, then you went looking for reasons. You went looking for intellectual justification. Now, that's the charge that atheists make against believers is, you know, you, you just had this experience and you wanted it to be true and you went looking for reasons. That's 100% true. That, guilty as charged. But it cuts both ways. It's the exact same for the person that doesn't believe. They had experiences, or you had, if you're a non-believer, you had experiences that led you down that path and then after the fact, you looked into the, the intellectual stuff and found reasons for not believing. The reason this is so important is because I don't think this is the way most people think of it. You know, if you're t I've been talking to a lot of doubters, they always start with the intellectual stuff. They say, why don't you believe? Well, and they'll take off one of the things we talked about earlier, you know, the, the problem of injustice or, you know, not enough evidence, and it's always intellectual to start. But then, always, if you, if you dig a little bit deeper, and you push a little bit more, at some point in the conversation, they'll say something like, you know, I just can't believe in a God that would let my little brother die. Well, that's very different from the intellectual problem of evil in the abstract. It's, it's a, a type of the same thing, but it's an experience. And it, it grips you on a lot deeper level. Or it could be as simple as, you know, the town I grew up in, the Christians were really judgmental and kind of nasty people. I don't want to be like that. Or, or even just, I went to Catholic school and I didn't like the nuns. You know, they were mean. Or my mom always drug us to church on Sundays and it was the worst hour of my week. It was so boring. I hated the clothes. I felt like I was going crazy. And I promised myself every Sunday, my entire childhood, that as soon as I didn't have to do this anymore, I wasn't going to. What are those? They're experiences. They're experiences. And the point is, doubt is always personal. It always starts in your life and in your heart before it moves up to your head. And that doesn't mean that the, the, the intellectual objections aren't real. That doesn't mean that the arguments being made on both sides aren't valid. It just means that those things aren't first. They aren't the priority. What comes first is experience. And so if you're in this camp of, I'd like to believe, but I can't, 
there's only one way out, which is the same way you got in. Your doubts started with experiences. And so faith in undermining your doubts is going to have to begin not with arguments, but with experiences. Which takes us to the third section this morning. Lastly this morning, the leap of faith. The leap of faith. And I want to turn now, finally, to the, the scripture reading for this morning. The psalm, Psalm 73, written by this guy named Asaph. And what Asaph beautifully illustrates is, is both that doubts begin with experiences, but also that the way out is through experiences. So for him, it was this problem of injustice. And his life was really going terribly. You know, everything was falling apart. And he looked at people around him that not, so he was, you know, trying to be a, a believer, trying to be, you know, have a relationship with God. And his life has fallen apart. And then he looks at other people who don't even care about God at all, for one thing. But then, two, way more importantly, are immoral, are cheaters. They're, they're breaking all the rules, and their life is going way better than his life. And so he says, I think I might have chosen the wrong team here. You know, like this, the universe maybe isn't a fair place. Maybe there isn't a sense of justice. And it makes him doubt God altogether. The phrase he uses in the psalm is he says, my feet had almost slipped. In other words, he's climbing this mountain of faith and he almost loses it altogether. But then what happens? The, the key phrase in the psalm, and this is the, the main point this morning, this is, you know, if you don't get anything else, just get this part right here. The, the key phrase is when he says this, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And what he's saying is, I tried to reason it out for myself. I tried to deal with the intellectual side of things. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I tried to argue it out in my own mind, and I just became more and more confused. And my doubts just got stronger and stronger until I entered the sanctuary of God. What's that? It's the worship service. That's what you're doing right now. That's an experience. An experience. And that's what this is. You know, it's like, well, why, why should I come on Sundays instead of just listening to the podcast or listening to, to Christian music on Spotify? You know, because that's all we really have here. We just got, you know, some music and then a sermon. And you can get all of that on your phone during the week. You know, you have to, without the, the inconvenience of shaking hands with people and uh, dropping your kid off, you know, so... So why should you come here? Because it's an experience. It's an experience. And it doesn't happen every week for everybody. I'm not saying that. But it does happen every week for somebody, which is miraculous to me. And it happens some week for everybody, if you keep coming, which is that you have an experience of God's presence, of God himself. And that is what undermines doubt, not the arguments. Then later, after you've met God, after you've experienced God, after you've felt that, later you can argue stuff out. Fine. Don't try to do that first. First you have to have the experience. And a lot of you, almost all of you, if not all of you, can already point to a time that you have. Not necessarily just here on Sunday mornings or in church or in a worship service, but it could be anywhere. You know, so it could be a very random time. I talked last week on Easter about the most recent time for me, which was sitting on the couch with my two-year-old watching an, a nature show, you know, and, and all of a sudden, it just, bam, so powerful. 
And I was talking to a guy afterwards who's just found faith within the last couple of months, and he made the great point. He said, I can look back now and see all these random times where that happened to me, where I felt God's presence in a very powerful way, even before I, I knew anything about God. So some of the more typical ones, you know, are uh, having a kid. A lot of people I've talked to say, I was fine not believing in God until I was in the delivery room, and then I realized there was something more. Or just looking at the stars, or listening to music, or any experience of beauty, and it's no different than any of the other times, but all of a sudden this time, you know, you know with certainty. You know that this world is not all there is. You know it. The, the field in philosophy of how you know things is called epistemology. Let me give you a, a really quick summary of the entire field of epistemology. It's complicated. It's complicated. So we think, oh, stuff we know with our head, we know for sure, and then feelings, that's not real knowledge. Well, no, once you start getting into the weeds of this, this study epistemology, it doesn't work like that. Knowing something, knowing something with certainty, you can't prioritize intellectual beliefs over these experiences. In that moment, you know in your heart that God is real. And everybody in here has had an experience like that. Paul says in Romans 1, you can all, everybody, regardless of your upbringing, you can see that he's there. But then what happens is you have that experience, and then after the fact, you, you doubt the experience. You know, you say, well, did that really happen? You know, and, and maybe I was just, you know, really emotional that day. You know, or that's some, this, you know, you read some article about, well, what happened there was this evolutionary instinct, and in your brain it was these chemicals, and, and that's all it was. You know, it felt real, but it wasn't real. And God brought you here this morning just so I could say to you, it was real. That really happened. That really happened. And it's your life. You're denying your own life. You're denying your own experiences just to fit in with your theory. If we're going to look at the evidence, we have to look at all the evidence. Just be honest about what happened and then lean into that experience. All that you have to do to get over your doubts is just accept that experience, embrace that experience, and, and look for more. Open yourself up to more. So for one thing, that means coming to church. For another thing, it means trying to pray. And you say, well, how can I pray if I don't even know if I believe in God? You know, how can I, how can I talk to somebody I don't know if I believe in? Well, you just say that. You just tell them that. You say, God, I don't even know if I believe in you. But, you know, here's some things I'm thinking about. And you'll, if you keep doing that, if you keep saying things to him, eventually he's going to say something back. And then you're going to be in this very awkward position of having a conversation with someone who you don't know if they exist or not. And that's how it starts. That's how it starts with experience. As we close, I just want to say that you have to take a leap either way. Whether it's a leap toward him or a leap away from him, it's always a leap because there's not enough evidence on either side. You know, people try to hide behind this label of agnosticism. Well, agnosticism, agnostic, is a made-up word. It was the, the brights before there was brights. It just, this one caught on better. Thomas Huxley was the guy's name. This is 1870 in England. And he, he really just made it up. It's not a real English word. 
He just said, you know, everybody else has got a label for themselves. I don't believe anything. I want a label, so I'm going to call myself an agnostic. Friedrich Engels, the, the Marxist philosopher, 20 years later in 1890 was making fun of this. He says, oh, the, the English take their ignorance, translate it into Greek, and call it agnosticism. <laughs> and that's what agnosticism is, is it just, it's pleading ignorance on the most important question there is. And the, the real issue is, you, you can say you don't know, but, but the question is, how are you living? Because you're living one way or the other. You say, well, I don't know if there's a God. Well, are you living like there's a God? Are you pursuing him? Are you praying to him? Are you talking to him? Because if not, then you are living, you are living every day of your life as if there is no God. And my question to you is, how is that different than living every day of your life as if there is? Because both ways you're not sure, but you've already made a bet. You've placed your bet against them. And you say, oh, I'm not betting against them, I'm just not betting on them. But can't you see it's the same thing? It's the exact same thing. You've already taken a leap. You've already taken a leap one way. The most important decision of your life, and you just kind of fell into it by accident. And what I'm asking is, wouldn't it be better to take a leap on purpose? Wouldn't it be better to actually decide to leap? And if you do, what you will find is that he will catch you, that he will meet you, and then eventually your doubts will take care of themselves. Let's pray. Father, you see where we're getting hung up. You see what it is, whether an experience in our past or whether some intellectual objection that we just can't seem to get over, you see why we're having such a hard time. And what I ask is that you would come, and either right now or sometime this week, sometime this month, that you would come and you would melt our hearts, that you would come and you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us in whatever way, through whatever channel you choose. And that as we meet you, we would, even though our doubts are still there, we would have a confidence about taking this leap. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.